This is the California Liberty Project Podcast. So welcome back to California Liberty Project, the podcast. Once again, um, I'm really glad that you're all joining us on this rapidly growing podcast. Thank you very much for being back. This is the podcast where we talk about how to gain liberty, how to protect liberty, defend liberty, and we talk to some people who are advancing the ideas and are actually on the ground, you know, foot soldiers, if you will, um, folks who are working to uh, gain us back our liberty and to restore our way of life and protect and defend our way of life here in California, our very diverse, beautiful state. And so today I am joined by Lance Christensen of the California Policy Center. So first and foremost, thank you very much and welcome, Lance. Appreciate it. Happy to be here, Greg. Awesome. Um, yeah, thanks for making making time for us. There is a lot of important stuff to talk about, and I don't need to tell you that. Um, but before we jump into some of these, you know, very current, very hot topics that are going on here in our state, um, wrap up of the legislative session, parental notification, all these school board meetings, can you tell us a little bit about your background in education and how you got involved in some of these um, policy fights and the fight for for families here in California? Yeah, so I'm actually a uh, Northern California resident. We live up in Yuba County, which is about 45 minutes north of the capital. But I spent pretty much t- close to 20 years in and out of the state capital as a, a staffer, worked as a consultant, and uh, ended my my term there as a chief of staff to a state center from Orange County. And so my experience in the legislature is pretty uh, expansive. I've seen it just about every public policy. I'm a married father of five. My wife's a Bakersfield native. Uh, my kids are all seventh generation Californians. And so while I originally came from Denver, Colorado, this this has become my home. I've adopted California and I love it. And I want it to be successful. In my time in the legislature, I worked on a lot of different issues. Building upon my experience with a master's degree from public, of public policy from Pepperdine University, I'd also taught fourth grade when I lived in Denver uh, between undergrad and grad school. And so I've actually been in the classroom for some amount of time and, and have understood and, and seen and experienced what goes on in a school, especially in the inner city school in Denver, where there's a lot of challenges that uh, maybe some of the suburban schools don't see as much. But uh, the last few years, my boss, unfortunately, was not able to win re-election in the Senate. I went to move on to the California Policy Center, which is this, uh, it's a 501c3 educational nonprofit. Our goal is to reduce public sector barriers to freedom, to advance prosperity and, and human happiness in California. We do that every day through three different projects that we have. We have a project called CLEO. It's our California Local Elected Officials Group. In fact, we'll be in Bakersfield in mid-October, October the 11th, doing a training for anybody who wants to run for office. Then I, we have another project called the Parent Union, which in 2016, we established the goal for the Parent Union was to allow for parents to have a voice and to be a counteract or counteraction to what was happening with the teachers union. It's not an official union per se, but we want to give parents a voice and a choice. And our third project, at least the main project, is called our Janus Project. This is a building upon the Supreme Court decision in 2018 where the they said that you don't have to belong to a union to have a government job. It's against your First Amendment rights to compel speech. And when you donate money to a union, that's compelled speech if you don't otherwise consent. 
we have those three projects, but California Policy Center is also famous for collaborating with another uh, 501c3, the Nevada Policy Research Institute, and creating Transparent California. So if you're ever looking for what people are making in, in, in government, uh, we actually have pretty much every record of every employee in the state of, that is a state or city or a tax paid employee in the state. So we can knock down the mist that these people most of the time aren't paid as much uh, as other people. It not only has their pay and salary, but has their other benefits as well. The whole point of everything we do is to bring some amount of transparency and accountability to state and local government. And we do that every single day. There's about a dozen of us at California Policy Center. Um, I have been with the team for almost three years. Last or two years ago, just to go back a little bit, um, we had some friends say, hey, it's about time that we have some school choice in California. And they came to us and said, would you be interested in collaborating on a school choice initiative? And we said, yeah, totally happy to. And the reason I love doing it is because years before, three years before that, when I worked for John Warlock in the state Senate, we had introduced a bill to have education savings accounts um, as a part of the process. The bill didn't go uh, anywhere. It got killed in committee by a Democratic supermajority. And the teachers union obviously wants no competition. And so we drafted this initiative. Uh, we had some interesting challenges with the coalition and uh, could not get it on the ballot, unfortunately. And so, you know, rather than sit back and think, you know, what do I do? Give up, kind of, you know, throw up my hands and walk away. Somebody came to me and made a really interesting observation. They said, you know, if this initiative were to pass, you know who would be in charge of implementing the whole thing. And I looked at him and I hadn't thought much about it. Again, I had helped write the initiative. So it wasn't like something I was unfamiliar with. But I said to the superintendent of public instruction, they said, yes. You know, and I thought, okay, who's running for that, right? Um, and as I had these conversations with many people, I couldn't find a candidate that I loved. There was a few that had thought about it, were considering it, uh, that I would have totally supported, but when nobody stepped up to the plate, at least in my view as a solid, really respectable pro parent, you know, limited government candidate, I jumped in the race literally at the last moment. Uh, I filed my final paperwork at like 445 with the with the county registrar up in uh, Yuba County. And going through the whole process, I didn't come out with a ton of money or name recognition. I'm just some other guy. But I had had relationships across the state uh, as I'd worked for the initiative, as I'd been in the state legislature. So I wasn't coming out unprepared. I wasn't just some regular, you know, Joe Schmo. But it was a huge buildup, and I did over 200 events across the state. I visited 30 counties. I put 120,000 miles in the air and 60,000 miles in my car. Um, I was going nonstop for almost probably nine months until the election. Uh, unfortunately, it was a 60-40 election. I lost um, against a big Democratic machine. The unions and the, the incumbent spent um, close to $5 million against me. I had I raised very little money. And so, again, you get to this precipice where you feel like you've lost, except I didn't. I made a ton of friends. I made 3.2 million friends, yeah. right, in terms of votes. That's not nothing. And so, you know, we can talk more about that shift, but then it was like, okay, I, I did this thing. I met a lot of incredible people. Do I take my marbles and go home? Right. And um, 
and I decided not to. So we can talk more about that, but uh, that's pretty much me. Again, my five kids have all been in the public school system. My oldest graduated last year and is off uh, on his own now. I have four currently in the public school systems, one in elementary, one, one, in, two, one two in elementary, one in middle school, one in high school. So I'm living this public school experience. This is not something that's like uh, distant right. for me. Right. This is an everyday issue. Right. And you might be a man who's even uh, slightly busier than I am because I've got four and they're all from high school <laughs> through elementary school. And so, yeah, this this type of thing is uh, is very important to all of us. Right. Um, Absolutely. And yeah, it, so during your campaign, I, I think I had, I had seen you. I don't think we, we met um, formally, but I've definitely seen your activities, you know, up and down the state. And um, man, that must take a lot of, a lot of energy to, to bounce back and forth, back and forth. We have a, as you know, better than I do at this point, we have a very, very long and tall state, <laughs> um, you know, several hundred miles, what, 700, 800 miles north, south. And so that must be a a ton of commuting, um, for sure. Um, l- let me ask you, with the legislative session um, that has just closed, does California Policy Center do specific work with legislation or just kind of back bills as a, uh, as a freedom and, and family-friendly organization? Or, or What was your guys or your organization's involvement in this legislative session and battle, which this year, if I may characterize it, it seems like it was heavily, heavily, you know, the theme here, the motif from our, from our Democrat friends in Sacramento was let's go after family autonomy and family local sovereignty versus last year. Um, if I may characterize yet again, it seemed to be a lot of, you're going to get this injection. You're going to do this. You're going to talk about X and Y with your doctor. Your doctor can't say this. It was all about COVID fanaticism and authoritarianism. So for this year's slate of, of bad bills, and there were many, um, what was some of the work or advocacy work, um, educational work that your organization might have been involved with on those? So we, as a 501c3, don't get involved in politics per se. Okay. Um, right. Our advocacy on a legislative level is limited. There's this thing called an H election where we're allowed to do uh, a small amount of, of advocacy as long as it's balanced within the greater mission of our of our nonprofit. Okay. So that all said, yeah. we have enough people and I have enough experience that I could spend a good amount of my time working on and monitoring the legislative session to to make those determinations. I also spent some time again at the Department of Finance when Governor Schwarzenegger was in office. My budget was in charge of all of the youth prison facilities, um, what we used to call the the California um, Youth Authority. It became the Department of Juvenile Justice over a period of time. I was there at the beginning of that transition. And so uh, I dealt a lot with the dollars and cents of what's happening. So we would watch not only the legislation that's going through, but the budget issues, which are a huge piece of of the pie. California just signed the past and the governor signed a $310 billion budget. That's a third of a trillion dollars. You know, when I explain this to people, their eyes kind of like open up and they think, oh, wow, that's a lot of money. No, it is a lot of money. It's a massive amount of money. It's a country level amount of money. Yes. Yes. And when you talk about, and again, there's arguments about how you justify this, but when California is in the top 10 economies in the world, you know, when our GDP 
uh, just for the state is somewhere around $4.2 trillion. That's a lot of money moving through, and it makes sense. So watching the budget is a huge deal because it impacts not just what happens at the state level, but the money that goes down to the locals, the counties and cities, and then to the school districts. Yes. Um, so that's a big piece of my of my watching. A lot of people don't have that experience. And so I think that's an opportunity for me to share that experience with other people. But yes, we didn't just watch and monitor legislation. We actually sponsored two bills this year, two by local uh, state senator Shannon Grove out of uh, Bakersfield, a friend of mine for a long time. We've known each other for, for years. And she came to me this last year and said, hey, I want to take the torch on this uh, school choice stuff, education savings accounts. And I want to do a bill. Will you help me draft it? And so we did. We cleaned it up a little bit, refined some of the pieces that uh, we had challenges with, and we put it in as SB 292. And uh, unfortunately, the committee didn't pass it out, but it didn't come without a really vigorous debate on what are the responsibilities of a parent over their kid's education. And if the state requires that every kid go to school, a compulsory education, then shouldn't we be providing resources to those that may not choose the traditional neighborhood public school? Now, some people have differences philosophically about whether that money should come to a child or not. We can have that debate, but the Supreme Court over the last three years has settled that question twice. Um, So the United States Supreme Court has said, listen, you can have public money go to private institutions. Now, there's got to be some, obviously, some oversight and, and care about how that happens. We're not just paying families to have kids. But if the requirement in the state constitution in Article 9 says that every child is entitled to a free common education, those are the exact words that come out of the uh, out of the constitution, mm-hmm. common means public, right. then it doesn't prescribe that that has to be a government school. Right. So if I were to go to a, a private school, it's still a public school. It's still the public being served. Right. Um, it's just not necessarily a public government school. So we have that debate. The bill didn't go through, but great, great, interesting discussion. But we also sponsored another bill. Um, the year before when I ran for superintendent of public instruction, Tony Thurman decided to hide all the test scores because he didn't want to be held accountable for how bad things had been during the pandemic. He was a man who had decided not to fight on this issue at all. And so one of the things I called them out on was the test scores, uh, CASP or, or smart, um, smarter balance test scores. The idea is that when you have these test scores come in, you need to be able to, as a school district, to um, pivot really quickly mm-hmm. to know, okay, do we have enough resources for math education or English or are certain grades struggling at different levels? How can we allocate our resources the best so that our kids get a better education than they would otherwise. That's the whole point of testing, right? right? Is to assess where you're at and then to improve. Well, he was hiding the ball. And EdSource, which is a, more of a center left, but they're fairly balanced when it comes to most, most education reporting, called him out on it. And EdSource said, you're not giving us the data. Where's the data? We need to help share this with people. And that's a huge problem. And so in the midst of that conversation, uh, he was finally forced to kind of come out by public pressure. Again, this is where good campaigns can have an impact, because if you're if you put up candidates who just want to go out and yell and scream all the time, that can be fine for a little bit. But you need to have candidates who are educated about the real policy implications of what they're trying to accomplish. Right. And so for me, driving better data and transparency, again, is consistent with the mission of California Policy Center. And I want to say right here really quickly, while I ran for superintendent, I was still fully employed at CPC, okay. but I divided my time. I didn't cross wires at all. 
if I was doing CPC stuff, I did it then. If sure. I did campaign stuff, it was separate. So all of that said, we decided to put a bill forward, SB 293, which would require the superintendent and the Department of Education to push this information forward. The bill got passed and signed by the governor. So this is where positive advocacy can move the needle. And maybe we didn't get like a huge grand slam. We got a base hit. And I am really happy about that base hit because there's more base hits that we can work on from here. Right. So right. That, that's kind of the top line of stuff we've done. We also push back against different legislation, which we can talk about as well. Yeah. No, absolutely. There's um, a lot of interesting stuff there, a lot of good material. Um, on this podcast, I've spoken to several great guests, many of many of whom you no doubt know. And we've discussed some of the big headliner bills. And there are some minor bills, which are terrible too, but some of the ones that have grabbed attention. Let me ask you, um, and you know, maybe you know the, the current status on some of these because we're tracking them like week to week. And of course, the legislative session just ended, I think, a week, maybe a week and a half ago. Um, AB 1078. Now, remember, this is this is one of the baddies, um, the state curriculum takeover, you know, by Tony Thurmond in Sacramento, and they're going to come in and they're going to force Harvey Milk into every preschool or whatever and tell you what you can and can't talk about. Um, so some of these that I'm going to go through, I'm, this will just be kind of like asking your impression or your understanding. Um, do you think Newsom is going to sign uh, something like specifically AB 1078? And what's his timeline for the for the signature um, on that before it becomes a like a pocket veto? Do we have that in California or? No, it's a bit different, yeah. but I'll explain that. So um, 1078 originated because the Temecula uh, Valley Unified School District right. decided to push really hard against some of the curriculum that had, that had seeped into its system. And as they were going through and approving new curriculum, they found some really objectionable stuff. Sure. And I think legitimately ob objectionable. And we can have a whole discussion on Harvey Milk, whether it's appropriate to talk about him in, in kindergarten and third grade. <laughs> right. But um, and, and what he actually accomplished as a, as a supervisor in San yes. Francisco in, in you know, the 60s and 70s. Yeah, not much. Which was pretty much nothing. Yeah. Um, that said, so, but again, there's these totem poles of the left that they – that they really want to force the narrative on these issues. And Temecula said, well, we can talk about um, gay, gay people and LGBT stuff. That's not the issue. The issue is, can we pick some people that are actually reputable and actually move the needle? You know, your Sally Rides of the world and others where, where we can actually have a conversation about what they accomplish without having to focus exclusively on their sexuality. Yes. Right? Yes. And Harvey Milk, um, if, I'm, if I may uh, kind of jump in there. Harvey Milk, I don't have anything personally against, well, some of the things, you know, some of the allegations of pederasty are obviously very problematic. But aside from that, just his his accomplishments, I don't understand, or maybe I do understand, this push to make him essentially the Martin Luther King Jr. of the gay rights movement. And it's like, guys, you picked the wrong horse. This guy was like a county supervisor. He did very, very little except some parking ordinances, I think, or whatever. And then, you know, unfortunately, he was murdered, not for being a gay man, I might add, a totally separate deal. I don't think he should have been murdered. I'm sorry about that. But it oh, was terrible. Yeah, it's, it, terrible. it's a terrible yeah. crime against him. Um, obviously, I support non-aggression. Um, I want to have a peaceful society. However, um, my point being, he's not the Martin Luther King Jr. of the gay rights movement, um, although they want to kind of shoehorn Harvey Milk into that role. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, when you look at its associations, they get pretty bad. So, yes, yeah, so yeah. we we were very helpful to Temecula. I, I actually, on a personal level, again, not CPC, but on a personal level, I had endorsed 
and worked with the board at Temecula to get them elected because I felt like it was important mm. that we recapture our school boards. Yes. As we go into 2022, you had about 2,500 seats up for election. And those are seats that most people don't think about. And so I worked with a lot of people, especially those in the Central Valley, along the coast, in LA, Southern California, all the way up to um, Del Norte County, the very top of the way state, to make sure that we could get good can- you know, candidates out there. And so Temecula does this stuff. Well, lo and behold, the governor's just incensed that they would dare call out, um, you know, some of this really objectionable material for young kids Mm -hmm. and want to replace it. And so he went on the, the, the offense at the same time, a freshman legislator from Riverside County, who is a cultural Marxist. um, And I'm not just saying that to say that. I mean, he would declare himself to be that. Um, is uh, Corey, Corey Jackson, Jackson, Dr. Corey Jackson right. from Riverside County, and who is a militant um, radical Marxist. Right. Um, just go to his website and just go just go stroll through his social media. I don't need to convince anybody of it. Yeah. They'll figure out really quickly how how left he is. He's, he's the authoritarian left. And so he introduced this bill to basically go and punish Temecula. At the same time, the governor threatens to sue the state or sue the county, excuse me, the school board to require them to accept the book. He was going to order it on their behalf and send it to them. Yeah. And then he was going to fine them uh, a million and a half dollars, except there's problems with all three of those things. One, he had no authority to really condemn them. Mm-hmm. School boards by virtue of article nine, section um, five and 14 basically give school boards a lot of authority to do these Correct. things. Number two, um, there was no law against them, you know, p- pushing one book or the other. And then number three, when he tried to do this whole, uh, you know, fine thing, he had no authority to issue a fine. And there's a protocol and a process by which the county boards can get involved when there's some sort of conflicts. That was all bypassed. I mean, that's current law right now. So Corey Jackson comes in and decides to set up this really, you know, aggressive form of punishing school districts that don't want to agree with the orthodoxy. And it was interesting because uh, the first hearing, I'll send you the link at some point in time, you can check it out. But the first committee hearing, the Assembly Education Committee, I showed up to oppose the bill. It was a pretty respectful bill. You know, local control, um, school boards really should be able to make these decisions. You know, who in Sacramento as a bureaucrat can make a better decision than those that are are in the community? And also, the values of San Francisco may not reflect the values of Temecula or Kern County or somewhere else. So let's let's focus on that a little bit. Sure. I get up and get ready to speak. He's presenting his bill. He proceeds to call me and other people that oppose the bill. uh, National white white national Christian. White Christian whatever. nationalists. I can't remember. Or, yeah. White Christian nationalists. He kind of, he confused his verbiage from time to time. So I'm having a hard time remembering yeah. the exact word. Was fascist in there? Probably a fascist. I, he did not that one. Okay. At later ones, yes, but not that one. And so I got up. I was pretty much the only guy that really opposed the bill. I think there might've been one other person who was doing a soft oppose. But I said, excuse me, like we can oppose a bill and really be respectful about how we're doing without being called, um, you know, uh, fascist for lack of a better term. And I had been in the building long enough to know how this protocol works. Mm. This is not like I have literally been in thousands of committee hearings, not hundreds, 
thousands of them. So yeah. I know how this works. In I could do this in my sleep. And I looked at the chair and I said, this is unacceptable behavior. But guess what? Corey Jackson doubles down. Mm. And so I walk out of the committee hearing and I confront him and I said, can we have a conversation about this? Because I'm not a, a you know white Christian nationalist because I oppose your bill. Like we have really serious objections. Right. And he just kind of brushed me off like, you know, uh, some sort of like, you know, common man, you know, mm. and he ran away and his legislative director kind of blocked and, and, you know, blocked me from having that conversation. And I, I said, we really need to have a civilized, dignified, mature conversation, but that didn't happen. Well, it metastasized. He kept pushing harder and harder on that bill. It got amended a few times. It actually got diluted se- severely before it went to the, the Senate. Yes. When it got to the Senate, the governor that said, nope, I'm going to sign it and support it. They threw all the bad stuff back in, except that the bill just doesn't make sense. Hmm. People need to read the bill. It just, it, it doesn't work how you want it to work and it's going to cause a lot of havoc. So the governor is committed to signing the bill. It's going, it's on his desk. Okay. Um, he'll probably sign that when he signs a handful of other bills that are just as bad that we'll talk about. Yeah. But the problem here is folks, when you get a piece of legislation, you have to have a pathway for to implement that legislation. Yeah. If you can't implement it in a way that makes sense, it's going to cause more problems, which will require more legislative fixes, which will continue to impair liberty for the people that want it. Yeah. And I guess, so my question, and it sounds like you have really good sense um, being in Sacramento and being involved in committee hearings and being present. My question was, you know, we don't, we don't need, we don't have time today. We could do it in a future podcast or, or maybe not. It's just political. Um, but Newsom has other plans, you know, when, whenever he decides to run for president, let's put that aside for right now. But we saw him swoop in, I think for Shannon Groves, SB 14, right? And kind of cajole and whatever he was doing behind the scenes, I, I guess occasionally once out of every 10 times he needs to swoop in, get national headlines and pretend he's a moderate. I was hoping or I was wondering without any data um, as to the the outcome of this, I was thinking maybe AB 1078 because it's gotten some national attention a little bit, certainly a lot of regional attention here in our state. Is there any chance that he could throw down one of his newsome wild cards because of Newsom's own ambition and maybe veto this, but it sounds like, oh, no. it sounds like this no, is going to be signed. In. He's all in. He is all in uh, on this. And okay. yes, okay. We, he, he does suffer from the broken clock fallacy <laughs> right? Uh, where from time to time he makes a good decision, but he's not making a good decision for the right reason. Correct. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. On the Shannon Grove thing, just one really quick piece on that. Yeah. It had actually gone out of every committee and on the floor of the Senate with no, no votes, zero, no yeah. votes. It was amazing because, and this is kind of a little thing that most people overlook on that particular bill. It didn't just get out with no, no votes in the Senate. They did it. They put it on what they call the special consent calendar. And why they do that is because if it has no, no votes in committee, it's not objectionable. They put it on there, but they do it for a second reason too. And this is a little more esoteric. Hmm. If you're in the legislature and you don't want to talk about a particular bill, but you want to silently support it, move it through, you throw it on that calendar so you don't have to speechify on it. Okay. Right? So okay. what the legislature did, the Senate did, is they removed her voice from that. Now, she consented because she's thinking it's going to go through. I don't care how it gets through. Sure. I just want it done. Right. And they knew on the Senate side that it would be choked up in the Assembly Public Safety Committee because that right. chair is another radical. Okay. And so and who's that they chair? knew they could shove it. Reggie Jones Sawyer, he is somebody who has been soft on crime and pushed really hard to remove any sort of penalties, even for Mm -hmm. violent crimes. Uh, And so they knew 
They could push it through the Senate, get it to the Assembly Public Safety Committee, and it would die. This is what this is why the whole it's a ledger domain sort of thing, where there's a whole bunch of this is not conspiracy theory. This is how it works all the time, the legislature. Okay. So a lot of people looked up and they're like, how did it stop? It was unopposed in the Senate. It stopped because they knew that it would stop in their side. They okay. they could keep their hands clean. Well, I don't know why. Right. 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 It's that sort of approach. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and by the way, for the audience, again, SB 14, I believe, I don't know the exact verbiage, but that was essentially making child trafficking or sex trafficking a, a classifying it as a serious or violent felony, I believe. Is for a third strike reason. For the yes. third strike, for California's third strike policy. Um, let me ask you about the another one of our notorious bad bills, capital Bs, AB 957. Um is your sense or is your personal understanding that um, now this one, I think, is also sitting on Newsom's desk, I believe it was passed yes. out of both chambers. Um, and that, of course, is the, the court um, court consideration or the court strong arming um, themselves into custody battles uh, where the, the child has gender dysmorphia or gender identity or is changing their name. Essentially, the state would be favoring the parent which is, quote, affirming the gender um, uh, dysmorphia or what have you. Um, What is your understanding or what's your opinion? Do you think that one is going to be, will that be signed? Is that going to go through? Or maybe you don't don't know that one? Yeah, this is part of a constellation of bills that we've been dealing with for the last several years. Um, If you remember in, I think it was last year, 2022, you had S. SB 923 and SB 107 by Scott Wiener. And again, AB 957 is joint authored by or co-authored by Scott Wiener. That's right. So this new member, Lori Wilson, who has a transgender uh, child herself, uh, had this bill. Scott Wiener came in. Well, there's a reason he came in. He had these other two bills, which basically allowed for uh, sanctioned kidnapping of children. And, And why I say that is if you have a child in another state... That whose parents don't want them to go through this process and they run away to California, California will take possession of that child and start processing it for sterilization and mutilation. Um, and so a lot of people are, I think we're aghast by this because we actually have um, lawsuits right now in places like Texas mm-hmm. where a father and a mother are in a custody battle over their child on this issue and the mother has brought their child to California. Uh, Jeff and Younger, so, I think, or the man's name is Younger, yeah. I believe. That yeah. famous case. And yeah. so this this whole process is not just some sort of like uh, dystopian novel. It's literally happening right now in California. Yeah. And so SB 107 is that sanction kidnapping. So the next step is, okay, if we actually have these battles in California, then how do we deal with them? And what 957 did is basically says that this is going to be the primary consideration in a, in a custody dispute between – uh, two parents who are battling over their children, whether in, in divorce or after divorce, you know, custody hearings are terrible um, in the first place. Yeah. So we're going to up the ante at this point in time and create a situation by which these kids now will use their gender dysmorphia as some sort of leverage between their parents. Yeah. And the court is going to sanction this. And if you have uh, a highly emotional situation, which I, I have been through, unfortunately, with uh, family members and in multiple situations. It is never a fun situation. Not even the most amiable divorces, I think, are good. Uh, they yeah. usually there's a little bit of acrimony in everyone, and most of the time there's a lot. 
when you start to put these kids in the middle of that situation, then you're going to have a big problem. So the governor, I believe, is absolutely going to sign this bill. It's one of the worst bills on his desk. And so, yeah. Yeah. you know, he's going to sign it. Okay. Um, well, that's uh, not the ray of sunshine I was hoping for. But hey, we want to talk about reality. And I, I appreciate your insight into this. Um, and then I know we've, we've also, we don't have time to go through all of them, but um, AB665, um, which that one is what children as young as uh, 12 can essentially be uh, liberated or they can basically um, make choices on their own care um, without their parents' consent as far as counseling, mental health services, and whatnot, down to 12, 12 and a half years of age. Um, that, and then I'll also ask you really quick about 659, which is forcing the HPV vaccine onto... Uh, kids going into public schools on some of those. I mean, I think these are also sitting on the governor's desk, unfortunately, uh, as my understanding. Are we, are we looking at him signing these into law as well? Yeah. I mean, again, uh, Gavin Newsom um, won't subject his own family to these kinds of things. Oh no. Uh, His kids are all in private school and they have different rules in private school than public school. I mean, he, he's out there yelling and screaming about people who want school choice, but yet he has it and he, he, he effectively uses it. And I have no compunction with that. Like you want to send your kid to private school? Absolutely. God bless you. But this whole idea that just because he and his wife have millions of dollars um, and they could do that uh, as opposed to a a family who might be poor and otherwise can't afford the 10 to $14,000 a year for private school tuition is ridiculous. So when you come to the bill like an S or AB 665 um, by Wendy Carrillo, it's another bill where you've got, um, you have a conversation about consent and the age of consent. Yeah. We don't allow our kids to take a Tylenol without, a parental consent. We don't allow them to watch a PG-13 movie at school without consent. Correct. We don't allow them to go and get uh, get sun, uh, go to sunbathing uh, beds and do that. We don't allow them to get tattoos before they're 18 or dry before they're 16. We don't allow them to do a lot of things until they're older. And why? Well, in SB 274, another bill, which you probably aren't going to talk about today, but I'll bring it up really quickly. It's the bill to get rid of the willf- willfully defiance um, wow. uh, yeah. sort of control right. with teachers in schools who are frustrated by kids who are constantly disrupting and misbehaving in class and making it impossible for them to teach. Sure. In that bill, the actual legislative intent and, and background in the bill itself says that kids' brains don't mature until much later in life. So why on earth, on one hand, can we say, yes, we will allow for these kids that are you know, willfully defiant, we'll give them some grace and some latitude. We understand that they, their brains are not going to mature very fast. And then on the other hand, say, oh, no, no, at 12 years old, they can make decisions about right. their lives. And if they want to transition, then they can do yeah. that. Because that's essentially what's happening. And there's another sort of, I think, insidious piece to this whole, whole thing. In California, teachers um, are not trained to be therapists. Correct. They're not trained to, to be, you know, spiritual guides. That's not their job. And if you were to ask most union members of the teachers union, they would say something to the effect of, oh, well, um, you know, we bargain different things, but they are required to be mandated reporters. Right. If they see abuse, neglect, or, or otherwise in the home, they're required by law to share that with law enforcement. But when you get to issues like consent, um, we're, we're in this weird gray area, and this isn't specifically about teachers, but I want to draw the line here because what's happening is we're allowing kids, we're emboldening them at 12 years old to make life decisions that will be altering 
for for the rest of their time on earth. Absolutely. And we lose that 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 tie between the parent and the child. And this is the whole point. The whole point of all this legislation this year was to sever the tie between a parent and a child. Right. And this is another bill that does that. Yeah, it's it's extremely scary. Uh, it's a violation of all of our deeply held traditions. Um, certainly, we can invoke natural rights. We can invo- invoke constitutional decisions um, or constitutional rights, Supreme Court decisions, um, and even the body of common law and precedent in this in this nation. Uh, we don't have civil law here. We have common law, as you and I know. And um, this is a total inversion of, of an entire society, really. And you're absolutely right. That is the theme of so many of these bills this year. Um, Lance, let me, let me transition into, I mean, no pun intended. <laughs> let, me, let me move into a, a very closely related topic, these parental notification policies um, that have been hotly debated and discussed Certainly over the past month, um, I had Sonia Shah on from Chino Valley Unified, president there, uh, just a, a true patriot, um, an activist, a mother and wife um, who got involved, as my wife and I did in various capacities, as so many of us did over the past three years. And of course, she she famously kind of led the charge for Chino Valley and had that that great viral moment with um, with Tony Thurmond and down there yeah. in Chino. Um so I, it kind of started with them, and now it's just been snowballing. Uh, and that is, once again, this fight for parental notification, total common sense. If your child is transitioning, uh, if your child is expressing a different gender identity, um, and you know all this, I just want to make sure the audience is all up to speed. And of course, if, you're, if your child is uh, changing their name, going by a different name at school, known as a different name or gender or what have you. Um, that again, with mandated reporting and whatnot, this makes a lot of sense, but that teachers and school officials just need to let the parents know what's going on because gender dysphoria, body dysmorphia, all these things are serious. They're, they're definitely serious. They're, they're in the DSM-5 in some cases. And um, these are very important topics. And also taxpayers should not be kind of just cleaved out and cut out of the discussion, the taxpayers being the parents. Um, so let me ask you, I think we're up to like six or seven notable examples. Um, maybe it's more, but um, now we're starting to see a lot of school districts up and down the state begin to tackle this at their fall meetings here in September, hopefully October. Um, there was recently one uh, in Kern County where um, I think it was pretty well documented. This was raised by by some great uh, trustees, some great um, kind of board members, but I'm sense it didn't go through that night in Kern County and in, in I think one or two other places, maybe more. They've talked about these parental notification policies at the school board level at these meetings, but in some cases there's been a pressure to back off because we're fiduciaries or we have to be careful that we're not sued. Of course, um, Tony, well, Tony Thurman, Rob Bonta is suing Chino Valley famously. Um, and so now I think we're starting to see a little bit of um, nervous Nellyism. Um, a little bit of being too cautious, too conservative, um, too careful with these policies. Can you talk a little bit about kind of this milieu that um, you and I and others are, are, are following very closely? What's, what's your sense of the, the pulse of parental notification? Um, there's a nice broad question so, for you, but. 
so tons to unpack there. Sorry. But, uh, why don't you Why don't you and I start and go back to when we were kids in the eighties and nineties yeah. and the social contagion of bulimia and anorexia? What we didn't do back then is say, "Oh, parents shouldn't be aware; they shouldn't know what's going on." We'll let these girls uh, transition into starving themselves to death because it's 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 privacy. Otherwise, they'll kill themselves. Right. right. Um, we didn't do that. We said, no, let's get these girls help. Of course. And by and large, it was girls. I'm sure there were some young men too. But I remember, I remember the girls at, during lunch going and throw up their entire lunch and, yeah. and after school and being sickly. And it was just sad. We're seeing the exact same thing now that corresponds a lot with social media, the advent of cell phones. These kids have complete and acts, you know, absolute um, connection with the world. I don't know how you do it with your kids, but we have pretty strict limits about our kids and their access to media. We don't eliminate it. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure that we're helping them grow so that when they get into the real world, they can figure it out. Right. Um, but all of that put aside. So last year, I had an interesting meeting and connection with one by the name of Aaron Friday. If you haven't had Aaron Friday on your show, you absolutely should. Mm-hmm. Aaron Friday is a progressive Democrat uh, from the Bay Area who um, – had a daughter who was being transitioned in school and she said, this can't happen. And so we met, started talking and became fast friends. And she said, I want to do everything I can to fight this. And over a period of time, we developed this parental notification policy. She and I and a few others were going back and forth and, and figure out how to make this happen. And the way we decided to do it was introduced as a bill. Yeah. And she was able to connect with Bill Asaley, who's a new, newly elected assembly member from Riverside County, a former federal prosecutor, wicked smart guy. Yeah. Um, and he introduced the bill as AB 1314. Well, what happened is the assembly um, education chair, Al Maritsucci from L.A., decided he could not have this bill heard at all. And so he freaked out. And when he freaked out, they killed the bill, wouldn't allow it to be heard to be voted on. And Bill was like, okay, well, you know, assemblyman um Asali was like, well, what do I do here? And so he and I actually had this conversation. I'm I'm at Legoland with my kids huh. on spring break. And he calls me, he says, Lance, we gotta do something. We gotta get this in the schools. And I said, Yes. Yeah. So we developed a plan and started working on it. And Sonia Shah was one of the first that, you know, kind of came into this uh into this realm. And Sonia Shah and I had actually worked together last year to get her elected. I went and knocked doors with her. Sonia's oh, cool. become a dear and good friend of mine. Um, a great person. So, great person. Oh, she's yeah. amazing. It's it's uh, She's kind of that for such a time as this situation. Yes. You know, really an Esther, I, I would say. Um, and so she uh, and her board were all in on this. Um, we have had a really good policy to push through. And she took a lot of slings and arrows. And the media knew this was the touchstone. Like, this is the tip of the spear, just like Temecula was with all the curriculum issues. Chino Valley was with all these gender issues. But what's interesting, though, here is if you look at most public policy or public polling on this issue, parental notification ranks somewhere between 75 and 85 percent. Nothing in California gets 85 percent approval. Nothing. So the fact that even Democrats are really high in this in the high 60s and low 70s mm-hmm. on parental notification suggests that this is a, a non, nonpartisan issue. Yeah. But it becomes a very clear distinction between two very different cultural approaches, a pro-parent and family one versus a pro-government. Right. And it gets down to the very basic question, whose children are they? The parents? Or the governments. And the Supreme Court for a hundred years has consistently said that parents have the absolute right 
for to control the upbringing of their children. Absolutely. That's their responsibility. And we I believe uh, as a as a faithful Christian that my job and duty over my children is ordained by God and is pre-political. In other words, yes. it doesn't exist because a government says that it exists. It's like an inalienable right. Right. So I may not be a perfect person. Um, I may not be a really good parent sometimes, but I'm a parent nonetheless, and I have five kids, and that's my stewardship. And I know that you probably are a really good parent, Greg, and we have lots of friends that are really good parents. Are there a handful of parents out there that aren't that great? Yeah, I think we'd admit it. And I think we would actually look within our own family and friends and say, ah, I don't know that I would have done it that way. Yeah. But that's all Monday morning quarterbacking. Right. Because we all come from different experiences. And so when you have this idea that a child is going to make a dramatic change in their life and they're going to transition and you're going to remove a parent from that conversation and tell the teacher to keep secrets, make sure the school changes records and lies about it. It's not only illegal. There's education code uh, 233.5 and uh, education code 51101, which require honesty, which require uh, the parents to be involved in all the records and, and issues of their, their kids. There's no right for parental or uh, a right of privacy between a, a child and their parent. Mm -hmm. There are rights of privacy between a child and other people, but not between them and their parent. Right. And when there are exceptions to that issue, like allowing a kid to go to an abortion, it's a very niche sort of thing that's ensconced in law. We don't have that with kids that are that are uh, evolving. Correct. And number two is most of these kids, we can talk about the gender dysmorphia issue. Um, I think that's important, but let's not confuse it with kids that identify as lesbian or gay, right? Right. A lot of those kids are tomboys. Think about the tomboys you knew as a kid. If we went and started counting off the breast of the healthy breasts of every girl who was a tomboy, we would have a whole generation of millions of women that could never produce a child. Sure. And why would we do that? Right. Um, when a lot of these kids, we have found that it's like in a high percentage, like in the 80, 85, 90 percentile, most of these kids desist once they get to adulthood. Remember the brain finishes forming. That's what we're told. And they get out of this yeah. they get out of this toxic stew called high school right. and they kind of get into normal life. And so puberty is terrible. It's wicked, it's evil. I hate it. We've all been through it, but we know that that's just the way things go. Yes. So we need to support these kids in a way that we love them. And a parent is going to I think 99.999% of the time love their children. Are we going to have the parents to get really upset and angry about it? Absolutely. And I don't deny that. But the law enforcement, there's already a protocol to deal it's with. There's already that now, mandata not mandatory reporting, parents. right? We already have yeah, mandatory. Yeah. If there is abuse in the home, if there's violence against the child, that's an awful crime. We all abhor it. Democrats, Republicans, libertarians, we all abhor it and we all hate that. There are mechanisms in place and we cannot just go out and snatch due process or ignore due process for parents. You're not guilty until proven innocent, right, Lance? I mean, yeah, they have, uh, parents have a 14th Amendment. Um, r r protection responsibility and rights over their children. One last thing too, I'm a parent of, uh, of teenage boys and they're boys. If they one day decided they were going to be girls to, to be funny, go to the locker room of the girls. Um, I would want to know about that. Yes. You know, but right now the policy of the state of California, which is illegal, unconstitutional and unethical. The policy of the state of California is that the teacher should lie and protect my son doing a stupid thing rather than tell me about it so he and I can have a conversation about it. I'm not saying my sons would, are doing that, but they're teenage boys, right? Teenage boys think differently than a lot of people. 
But I would want to know about that. That sure. has nothing to do at that level with gender trans or, or gender dysphoria or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. It has to do with kids being kids. Yes. We should have that conversation. And parents deserve to know. Like if your kid uh, participates in a powder puff football game or something at high school, if there's a teacher saying, oh, great, go get a mutilating surgery, I'd like to know about that. Um, <laughs> the other funny thing too is that all day long we're yelled at and we're told that uh, genitals do not really comport with they don't really correlate with uh with with your sexuality or certainly with your gender identity right genitals don't equal gender identity but if you want to change your gender identity go get a mutilating surgery i'm i I don't really understand that something breaks down in the logic of all this um but no i think what we're trying to do is create eunuchs of society and this is something that's not this is not new to our age this has happened from you know time and memoriam But when you take and you remove the basic and essential characteristics of a human being, which is their biological sex, you remove more than just genitals. You change their entire perception and the way they view things. And what you then do is you alter the fabric of that community dramatically. Yes. And then the expectations have to constantly change. And and people talk about, you know, politics being downstream of culture. I'll add one more thing to that. There's a, a... uh, science fiction writer John C. Wright, who said years ago that, and paraphrasing that, yes, politics are downstream of culture, but culture, culture is downstream of faith or religion. Mm-hmm. And when you have a people who don't really take seriously their responsibility uh, to have some sort of faith, America, as John Adams has said, can only be successful if there's a, a, a people of faith. And I'm a person who has a strong conviction uh, in my faith. And I share openly with a lot of people. But what I tell people too is like, you don't have to go to my church, but go to church. Sure. Like go go to a place and build community with other people. Yeah. Build a faith, build a strength in, in, in a relationship. And then when we say things like it takes a village to raise a child, it's not because it's the parole officer and the teacher and the judge and you know the 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 welfare caretaker. It's the the priest and the Sunday school teacher and you know the 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 scout leader and other places that civil we society together, we worked yes right. then we work together to help for the benefit of these kids and it's a village in in terms of we kind of come in as a family to strengthen the family not to divide or cut it right right and that's why i i, I this is a broader um discussion a great discussion i've i've had other guests where we've discussed kind of the failure of classical liberalism where you're not going to have a value neutral or value free society it sounds great to just have Strictly the structure, the scaffolding of the Constitution and nothing else, because nature abhors a vacuum, something is going to fill that. There are going to be some values. It's almost impossible to have a completely neutral or value-free society. Um, Lance, do you have do you have a few more minutes? I wanted to ask you um, a couple of questions, if you have a few. Yeah, you put a quarter in me and I'll just go for as long as you want. Okay, awesome. Um, so on... And I don't want to keep you too long, but on the parental notification, then some specifics that maybe, you know, I think you're, you're very well um, educated on this is your sense that, okay, well, Chino Valley, they were leaders, of course, that's, that's going, we have, I think five or six additional school districts, maybe more seven total that have done it. Um, Right. This way or similar to this way, we're now finding there are other school districts that have already done it in different ways. Different verbiage. Yeah, and they try okay. to get underneath the radar. And so this is interesting nice. because we're actually finding this stuff out now. But no, there's a tidal wave happening. Okay, yeah. And I guess one of my sub-questions there was, um, it, one, is everyone kind of using the verbiage or the model bill? I believe that Bill Asaley did some great work on. He he uh, worked with, oh, what was the organization? Um, 
It was it. It wasn't well, the Coalition for Parental Rights, uh, California Family Council, and and California Policy Center. The ones that helped. Put that okay, together. perfect. Are, are all those seven school school districts so far? Are they using that verbiage, or are they kind of a lot of them and, are? Okay, there, there's a few where their their attorneys have done things differently. Okay, the California School Boards Association has come out against this stuff again using. Um, an interpretation of law, AB 1266, which was passed in 2013 by very um, active Tom Amiano from San Francisco, which allowed for kids to use different locker rooms and play different sports that were different from their assigned or from their birth at gender, their assigned birth or gender, yes. as they call it. Um, and so that's the law. I don't agree with the law. I think it's a terrible law for lots of different reasons. Um, civil society can work out where boys can play with girls and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, my daughter's played on my son's t-ball team and life didn't end. My um, kids but as now well. she plays softball and he plays baseball and that's how things go. Right. Um, but when they did the guidance on this, all you have to do is go to the Department of Education's website, go to the 1266, AB 1266 FAQ, and on there it says that the school districts can hide these records and create false records to hide them from parents. Um, that's what the Department of, Ed- uh, excuse me, the California School Board Association is using as kind of their interpretation. And mm. so a lot of school districts are nervous because they see what happened with the litigation in Chino, but they forget one thing. He the the attorney general only sued Chino. Why? It only stops theirs temporarily, and we'll find out on October thirteenth what's going to happen from there. But he didn't sue Temecula. He didn't sue right. Orange. Right. He didn't sue Rockland or Dry Creek or Anderson. Correct. He didn't sue any of these other school districts. Why? Because he doesn't have the law on his side, and he knows if rule, judges rule differently, that it will be appealed at some level, and that common sense will reign, and so. There's there's that. And then you have on top of that, you have these two teachers from Escondido that said, we refuse to be compelled to um, to, to silence our speech. Right. It's our First Amendment right. Right. We feel like parents should know these things. Yes. And we're more than happy to share with them a a United States federal judge. Um, Benitez. Just ruled right? last week. Was it Benitez? Benitez. Yeah. Yep. It just ruled in a very thorough um, ruling. And I would encourage anybody to go read oh, the 36 or 38. It's dynamite, pages. right? It's delicious, yes, and and you'll 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 read it, and he talks about uh, basically the three the, the trifecta of harms, right? Yes. Between the 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 relationship between a, a parent and a, a child, a child and their teacher, and a teacher and the parent, right? Yeah. So there's these different harms that you have if you encourage them to lie. And when you and I were kids, remember when when we had the the big ad campaigns? If anybody tells you to keep a secret. Or not to tell a parent, of course, like report it to an authority. Yeah, and after school specials, remember all that stuff. Oh my and, gosh, yeah. like right. that was over and over. The softball coach was molesting kids right. and all sorts right. of stuff, right? So, those kinds of things were happening when we were kids. Now, it's the complete opposite. Correct. No, if somebody tells you to keep a secret, don't tell your parents, right. right? Right. Well, why is that? Where, where, how did five minutes ago all of this suddenly flip on its head? Well, it flipped on its head because the other side doesn't want us to have absolute. You know, stewardship over our children. Yeah. And so with Cultural these revolution. notification policies, yeah. yes, and, and that's what uh, Judge Benitez, um, he puts his finger on that and he says, listen, parents have absolutely the right to their children. Yes. And so you have this now dueling um, 
the dueling litigation, not the same issues precisely. One's on a policy, mm-hmm. one's on a free speech thing, one's at a state level because the, the attorney general knew he can argue this at the federal level. And he wants to not get it at the federal level because he will lose on constitutional issues, the first and the 14th Amendment. Yeah. Right? Right. But then you have this other judge come in and he just crushes everything that Rob Bonta said and that the judge who, who allowed for the temporary restraining order in the San Bernardino County uh, ruling. He just crushed everything that was said in there. Yes. Everything. Yeah. So this, I think, we were anticipating two or three years before it gets to the Supreme Court. Yeah. I actually think that it might go a lot faster than that because this has become the crowning issue of California right now. And put that on top with a lot of the scare tactics between these school boards. And I've been to a lot of the meetings, including twice yes. at the Kern County. Yeah. Um, and I and I helped, I helped work on those processes. Yeah. So – Twice we have seen in these board meetings in Kern County and other places, I've heard the same argument that if you do this, we will be sued. Right. right? I wanted to talk Teachers about will lose their yeah. credential and all that stuff. Right. No. We're fiduciaries. No, the, We're fiduciaries. Yeah. We're going to all get sued they, into oblivion. They screamed that. And at Rockland, I actually made that point. I turned to them and I said, okay, you can talk about being a fiduciary. And you are. You're a fiduciary also for these kids that have been transitioned without your Without your knowledge that the parents come back and sue, just ask your colleagues and Spreckles. Yes. And the room went silent and then clapping or, or emerged because everybody realized, holy cow, he's right. Lawsuit, $100,000 settlement right over in Spreckles yes. Union on and the coast. Yes, they settled. But here's the issue. And and I don't, I don't tell people to litigate very often, but I'm encouraging every parent who feels like they've been lied to because their child has gone through this process, sue your district. Yes. If you want this to change right now, sue your district right. because they will listen to lawsuits. Right. And if we can't get it through the state legislature, if the unions, the unions are behind blocking this too. Yeah. So if you're a member of the teachers union and you're conservative, it is your ethical and moral duty to leave that union and not pay money into a system that advocates against your values and your interests. Yeah, that's right. And so those are all things that I push really hard on because I believe that this is not something we play defense on. We have to play offense. Correct. And right now I'm playing offense and I will go to almost any school district there is out there as, as long as within driving or, or flying distance and I right. can get there. I will go and I will testify. And I've been to lots so far. Yeah. We hope that every school district in the state will take this up. And if not, we will make sure that parents can litigate where necessary when their child has been harmed. Yeah, absolutely. We need to remind our friends, our colleagues, even in conservative areas who are now nervous Nellies worrying about this thing, saying exactly that. We're fiduciaries. We're going to get sued. No, you're going to get sued the other way. And this this is an open question. Now, certainly, I don't think it needs to be an open question. You don't. But right now, it's being litigated um, figuratively and literally, and we need to come out on the right side of this. And what I do want is a little bit of nullification kind of mindset, a little bit of imposition at the local level. Now, this is not a federal, this is not you know a national issue, but at the local level, we need to have all of these school districts, not just seven, we need to have 70 or 70 times seven to, to quote the Bible. Um, we need to have school districts everywhere making different policies, sneaking things under the radar, making it impossible for Bonta and the goons up in Sacramento to come in with their iron fist. And they can't sue every school district in inland California, no. can they? Of course not. No, they can't. And they won't because they know they'll lose. Yes. But they also know too. And here's the other thing. Governor Newsom is not saying anything about this. Have you noticed that? I've, it's just two people. It's Rob Bonta and Tony Thurman. He's been very quiet. Yeah. And when he was approached about this, I think it was on a recent interview or two. I think it was Meet the Press. Maybe it was one other one 
where he was asked about it. He goes, well, we just need to come in with a little more humility and grace. How funny, how funny that all of a sudden he has some humility and grace when he was threatening to go, you know, uh, hook, line and sinker after Temecula for their for their book issues. He was all in full throttle. And now he's preaching humility and grace. No, he's doing it because he's seen the polling and the poll. And here here's one more piece, too. So Politico, which is kind of like one of the top political reporters in in the nation, they have a bureau in, in Sacramento that's pretty tight in. And their their little newsletter that went out yesterday statewide basically showed the playbook. Um, the governor's office was really concerned when the legislative LGBT caucus um, decided they were going to retaliate against Chino and other school districts that were doing these parental notification policies. And so they're going to craft legislation and push it out there. His office freaked out. So Christy mm-hmm. Bauma, who's his top legislative deputy and his chief of staff, Dana Williamson, these are both very very powerful people within the movement. Christy Bauma uh, used to represent the firefighters uh, union. Uh, she is well-known and well-respected in, in Sacramento. Dana Williamson, both of them have both been on the top hundred list of political insiders for Sacramento for forever mm. since the list probably was created. Um, they freaked out. They called the legislative uh, LGBT caucus and they said, you cannot do this. If you do this, it will be bad. We will not entertain this. Mm. Now the legislature says, oh, well, this was just a conversation. And of course, we're going to we're going to thoughtfully consider these things as we go forward. No, the legislature doesn't thoughtfully consider everything. They react all the time. And I know this because I spent almost 20 years in the legislature. Mm. I know exactly what the conversation was in the back rooms and in the caucus meetings because I've been there. And I know all the staff. I know all the members personally. They want to come hammer and tong after every parent right now. But the governor is running for president despite everything he says, all his protestations, and his top people have decided this is not a place to go. And what's the other person in this? Um, uh, Dee Dee Myers. Why does that name sound oh, familiar? Clinton, Clinton Land. Because she was Clinton's person, right? Yeah, and yeah. who? what is she doing now? She's doing the small business work at his office. So you have some of those powerful people in the world trying to craft a narrative, soften up the governor's image through this whole process, and stop the legislature from overreacting here so he can act like he's some sort of like uh, like he did with SB 14. Yeah. He's some sort of uh, mediator. Right. He's not those things. Gavin Newsom is a complete and terrible failure in california and you don't have to believe me just drive down the street yeah yeah go visit la or san francisco or any city in the central valley or just any city go look at sacramento eureka it looks like night of the living dead with the meth addicts on the eureka it's incredible it is it's absolutely um it's devastating that we've allowed a man to completely wreck this state so anybody who wants to tell me that he's done some good things, I can't name one. Housing's worse, education's worse, our economy's crime worse, our infrastructure's worse, yeah. crime is we up. Lost congressional one seats, good thing. losing popular. Yeah. Oh, and you saw that story the other day. They're estimating we're going to lose five, five, five more seats. Five. Yeah. Can you imagine? That's incredible. Like we're going through a decimation of the state right now. It's completely imploding. Um, people. The, one of the big financial centers of the entire world is San Francisco, and people aren't going there anymore. I watched a video of a guy get his car stolen as he's sitting in the car. So we're at, we're beyond this place now where there's any sort of law and order. When that happens and all civil society breaks down, what happens? Citizens react. And they vote with their it, feet. I don't yeah. 
it, well, they vote with their feet, but they also react. And I don't, yeah. pre- I don't mm-hmm. pretend to think that the the problems that we have in California are going to get any better without people standing up and actually, you know, asserting their own rights of self protection. Yeah, it's very sad as well because you know my several generations of my family are Californians. My dad went to public school. I mean, he went to UCLA. I think free. He just had to pay a pay a few hundred dollars in fees. But the point is, he got a good public education. Um, the public university system worked not for Chinese nationals coming in. It worked for Californians. The state used to work in the early 1960s. It was almost at its apex or apogee. And now as you're, as you're alluding to, we are seeing the Detroitization of California interest groups, Democrat led groups, uh, teachers unions, all are gnawing on the carcass of this once great, beautiful state. And I, I can't believe how bad things have to get. For people to begin waking up, I mean, a lot more people, not just you and me and our friends in the movement. Um, it really is a sad state of affairs. Uh, it's incredible. Well, and the economy is like a wagon. This is how I describe it to my kid. If you have ten people pulling the wagon and it's empty, it's easy to do. But you, somebody gets hurt, and we'll throw them in the wagon. We'll carry them for a little while. It's fine. It's not a big deal. We can do it, and it doesn't mean it's permanent. But then the person in the wagon's like, "Oh, this isn't so bad. I don't need to get out." And then there's a person that says, "Well, I want to get in. Like, I don't want to pull anymore." Yeah. So when you have two people in the wagon and eight are pulling again, still not, it's nominal, right? Then a third, then a fourth. Once you get to the fifth, the five pulling the wagon think wait, what on earth are we doing here? None of you need to be in the wagon except for maybe a short period of time. Right. And we can rotate through if we need to. But once that sixth person jumps in, the four are not going to pull the wagon. In fact, what they do is they drop the handle and they walk away. Yeah. And then the six inside are like, how on earth? What, we can't get where we need to go. Well, they've been so, so infantilized for so long that they have no idea how to pull the wagon, even if they wanted to pull the wagon. Yeah. That's where we are in California. The people have left, uh, many of your friends and my friends both have left the state and said, we're off to better climates, except I remind them, what happens in California does not stay in California. And I don't care which state you go to, they will follow you as fast as they can. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I have so much of my my mom's side of the family from uh, Orange County, Garden Grove area, that, that whole area. They've for the most part, all left. They're going to Idaho and places like that. But then when you get to Idaho or you get to Texas, you think you're going to like some red suburb or whatever. And it's like, what? What is coming into the public schools here or there? I can't tell you how many. I have buddies as well in the Dallas suburbs, North Dallas areas. And things are not what you would think there. They're not as Texas-y as you might think. And um, you know, we get a lot of the tech bros going to Austin and other places and in in texas that's a whole other dragging they're really yeah and and we get to have that on a day but <laughs> yeah. when they're when they're leaving the the carcass as you said earlier and going to another place they're taking the same disease with them. yes that's right that's right um no this has been a great conversation so far i want to really quick before i let you go i don't want to monopolize too much of your day here i really appreciate your time um i saw that cal california policy center is co-sponsoring or hosting, it looks like a big rally or a big gathering, a, a cool event down in Simi Valley on the eve of the Republican uh, debate down there. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Is it open to, to anyone who can make it? Um, what's going to be going on down there? On Yeah, anybody's Tuesday? welcome to come. It's a rally for parents. And on Tuesday, uh, September 26th, from 5 to 7, it's at the Rancho Madera Park across the street from the Reagan Library. And it's a beautiful park if you've never been there in Simi Valley. Um, but we hope to have hundreds of parents, if not more, show up and support parental rights. We have an amazing lineup of speakers 
um, I, Sony Shaw is one of them. Jill Simonian from uh, PragerU, Jesse, Jessica Tapia, who's suing um, her district about some things that are going on there from our watch, Amy Bond from Perk, Moms for Liberty, Moms for America, Rebecca Friedrichs, who was the, the original, you know, um, uh, person fighting the teachers union. Uh, Mario presents, uh, you know, Roxanne Ho, Jennifer Kennedy, Jordan uh, Henry. There are going to be some amazing people. Uh, they're speaking about parental rights. We hope that anybody and every, everybody will come. Yeah. And if you want more information, just go to CaliforniaPolicyCenter.org. You can find out there. You can follow me on Twitter at Lance Lands. Um, I'm very active on Twitter. I love that's my that's my sandbox, and I love being there and and having vigorous debates. I believe in in truth and in freedom. Um, and I believe that we can't shirk the fight. We have to stand up for our kids. And and our hope for this rally is to drive this discussion to the national debate. Excellent. That the next day when the presidential candidates are debating and talking about the critical issues of our day, they will say and they will show that they are on the side of parents yeah. and that they really believe that our rights should be respected. We're also doing one other thing, too. We have what we call a... Um, a parental rights pledge. Huh. Those that are running for office, school board, city council, uh, legislatures, county board, a water board, we don't care. If you're running for office, we would ask that you would consider our, our parental rights pledge and say that you are in strong support of parents going forward. And with that pledge, that you demonstrate that when you vote on issues, you will vote for pro-family things. And Again, that can be for anybody running for office, and they can find that on our website as well. Very cool. Yeah, I saw the lineup for um, for the the rally on September 26th down there, and I was like, "Oh, this looks cool. I need to find a way to get down there." Lots of lots of my friends, lots of guests on this show have been down there, um, are going to be down there, and it looks like a great event. So I'd encourage everyone to check that out. Um, head down to Simi Valley if you can next Tuesday, um, and certainly follow California Policy Center on Instagram and maybe on Twitter, but certainly Lance. We are on Twitter. At Lance uh, and Lance. on Facebook as well. Okay, on Twitter yep. or X, whatever we call it these days. Um, <laughs> right, right. But yeah, I really want to thank you very much, Lance. Lots of information packed into this. I know we went a few minutes over, but it was definitely worth it from my end. I appreciate all of your knowledge and hope to have you back again because there's a lot going on and uh, it's constantly changing, constantly evolving in this state. Um Looking forward to it. I appreciate your time, Greg, and, and we have to stand fast in, in the breach, and, and you're doing that. Absolutely. Thank you very much for your time. Have a great weekend. You too. This has been the California Liberty Project Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, share it with others, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter.